David Cohn is a Kansas Cityan, graduate of Rockhurst High, the band Johnson League, and was a major league pitcher for 17 seasons. He was a five-time World Series champion, five-time All-Star, and one of three Royals to win the Cy Young Award. In 1999, Cohn authored A Perfect Game, and 20 years later, he's authored his life story. Written with Jack Curry, Full Count, The Education of a Pitcher, debuted at number 13 on the New York Times bestseller list for hardcover nonfiction. Today, Cohn is a color analyst for the New York Yankees television network. We caught up with him on a recent Yankees visit to Kauffman Stadium. I always wanted to ask David about his Kansas City years And I wanted to find out how a pitcher who became as successful as he did didn't play high school baseball. David talks about that and much more on Sports Beat KC, the Kansas City Stars sports podcast. I'm your host, Blair Kirkhoff. David Cohn, thanks for joining us on Sports Beat KC. My pleasure, Blair. Good to be on with you. Great. Hey, so the book, uh, Full Count, The Education of a Pitcher, written with Jack Curry, um, I got a copy of it yesterday. I was able to speed read, Evelyn Wood speed read through it. I, I was really impressed with, it, it's not just, it, you know, your career is unfolds, you know, as it, written chronologically here, but it's not just the story of David Cohn's baseball life. Um, I, I just, there were chapters devoted to, you know, umpires, to, you know, to catchers. I mean, there, it, there was just a lot of different information in there uh, other than just the, the baseball life of, of David Cohn. So just let's start off by telling us what the motivation was for the book and sort of what the objective was. Uh, yeah, that was part of it. I mean, Jack Curry did such a great job, and when he approached me about doing this book, uh, there was an immediate trust factor because I'd known him for so long. He covered the majority of my career, and I just knew that I would be able to uh, peel back some layers and get into some 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 deeper stuff that happened to me in my career and uh, and then also touch on some other issues, kind of some cultural issues in the game uh, that I think, uh, you know, are pretty relevant in today's uh, bat flip age and whether or not, uh, you know, players should celebrate or show emotion or not. And I kind of, there's kind of a common common theme throughout the book that takes you on that kind of a journey. So we're, we're um, uh, kind of bottom line that for us. Where, where do you stand on, on the emotion? And it, is, it almost seems there's a generation gap in baseball. Yeah, it does. It does tend to break on generational lines. Uh, you know, I use it. You know, to me, I think there is a place for authentic emotion, without a doubt. You know, and I, I talk about early in my career of uh, having to play the rookie role, and especially when I was traded to the Mets from the Royals, uh, they were pretty pretty tough on rookies. You really had to play that role. They cut you down a size, almost right up to verbal abuse, and. Uh, you know, I felt repressed, and if I'm, you know, I faced Mike Schmidt, a Hall of Fame third baseman, and would strike him out in a big spot, and I had to immediately put my head down and repress any emotions. I, I couldn't even get a fist pump out, and that never felt natural to me. So there has to be a happy balance in there. I, I, I don't think you want players that choreograph, you know, exuberant celebrations on the field and meaningless games. I mean, there, there has to be, you know, a line in the sand there somewhere, but good, authentic emotion, I think, is good for the game. The younger generation certainly responds to it. Absolutely. I was going to ask you that. Do you think, it, is it your opinion that the game would have more appeal to younger, a younger audience if there was more emotion seen in the game? I don't think it would hurt, you know. I mean, that's that's probably a little bit of a cop-out of an answer, but uh, yes, I think it could help. I think players, uh, you take the Royals, a young shortstop, uh, Mondesi, is just so talented, the way he runs the base and plays with passion, and 
I think the young Kansas City fans would really respond to him. That being excited, being a big league player, playing for the Royals, showing real, true, authentic emotion, I think is something that is, that is much needed in the game, especially you know that, uh, for that younger generation. David, so you're a color commentator for the Yes Network, covering the Yankees, uh, who come to Kansas City once a year, which means you get to come home once a year. And um, you grew up in Northeast Kansas City and a uh, blue-collar household, right? And yes. um, uh, tell us a little bit about life at, on St. John Avenue. It was it was great. It was back in the neighborhood days when, uh, you know, I had uh, great friends all around, and we were outside every day, and uh, the best memories I have are in that backyard on St. John Avenue and playing wiffle ball and uh, pretending to hit like George Brett and, uh, you know, just listening to Denny Matthews on the radio. I was an avid Royals fan every night, every game, and one of the best uh, childhood memories I have is when my dad got a ladder and put it on the back of the house on St. John Avenue and put a floodlight up there so that we could play night wiffle ball games. And uh, to this day, I still remember, you know, those those battles we had. And I was always trying to emulate somebody, whether it was Dennis Leonard, uh, the Royals pitcher, or actually younger than that, in the mid-70s, it was Louis Tion in the 75 World Series. He was playing for the Red Sox, and so then, then my backyard became Conway Park, and I was Louis Tiant, and that's how I started just to throw sidearm, and I did that my whole career, really, and I talk about that in the book, about the Royals minor league coaches kind of trying to break me of that, and uh, some of the battles I had with some of the minor league coaches, and probably developed a little bit of a reputation for being a hothead or a hardhead, and I admit it, I own up to a lot of the behavior I had and some of the temper tantrums going back to childhood, and you know, I think there's a, it's, uh, that's what makes the book kind of real and honest and a little bit raw at times. So when you, so when you get the book, uh, read about what David Cohen has to say about Bill Fisher. Who <laughs> <laughs> yes. The Royals, uh, uh, was he the pitching coach at the time or the, uh, the organization's pitching Yes, guy? he was the top dog as far as uh, the organization goes. Uh, he was the uh, minor league roving pitching instructor, yeah. so he covered everybody. So uh, we had some legendary battles and long, hour-long bullpen sessions, which you would never see in today's game. Bill Fisher used to get me uh, in between starts or a practice session, and we would throw for an hour, I mean, or longer, and just bark at each other and bang heads, and you can't do it this way, you have to do it this way, and then I would always come right back at him and said, what, you know, what do you know, you know, and so it was, if you know any of the Royals minor league uh, coaches from those days, Rich Doobie yes. was there, and uh, he's got some pretty good stories uh, about, there they go again, Cohn and Fisher going at it. I think people would be interested to know that uh, you attended Rockhurst High School and didn't play high school baseball because at the time, Rockhurst didn't have baseball. But Ben Johnson was your, your Kansas City baseball connection as a teenager. Uh, Coyles, uh, uh, Boyles, right, uh, the corned beef company. Yeah, the Boyles famous corned corn, beef. Yes. Right, that was the team. But, but obviously you developed into a, a prospect in Ban Johnson baseball, played other sports at Rockhurst, yes. baseball wasn't available. You became a, pros- a baseball prospect. Just take us through the, uh, the scouting and the signing of David Cohen by the Royals. You know, there, it was, I was really under the radar because I was 15 years old when I started in that league, and that was a league for college players. It was 21 and under. So I was competing as a sophomore in high school against guys that were playing at the University of Kansas, Missouri, and you know, Iowa, Iowa State. and. Uh, so I, I just barely held my own, you know, and, and then once the scouts found out how old I was, then they, get, they got a little more interested. And I do remember uh, Carl Blondo, the late uh, scout for the Royals, was, was kind of on me, and uh, uh, he invited me to a tryout camp at Royal Stadium. And that, that's something. If you've ever been to a tryout camp at a major league ballpark, it is 
it is uh, like a convention. There's 250 players, and you have to, you know, you get 10 throws on the mound if you're a pitching prospect, and you just try to air it out, throw it as hard as you can, and maybe throw a couple of sliders or curveballs, whatever you feature. But it is just an assembly line. It's next, 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 and you don't really get much feedback, so you don't know uh, how you rank or how you did. But I always knew Carl Blondo was on me a little bit, and. Uh, but even with that being said, I didn't know that the Royals would, would draft me that highly in, in, in 81 in the third round. Third round, right. Third round draft pick, and you spent five years in the minor leagues, and then uh, the Royals win the world championship in 1985. Summer, I believe June of 1986, Mark Gubazoff suffers an injury, and the call comes. You're in Omaha. Yes. And you, so you get the call, and I believe you pitched that the night you were called up. Yes, I, I'll never forget it. And every time I see a, a young major leaguer make his debut, it still brings it back. And my dad was in the stands, my mom. I remember running in from the bullpen, and it felt like I was running underwater. It was just such a surreal feeling. Uh, it's hard to describe, but it was incredible. And I didn't pitch all that well. It was against Minnesota. I think I gave up a run, got hit around a little bit, but got out of it, you know. And uh, uh, but but all said and done, that is a that's just a day I'll never forget. I bet. I can't, I can't imagine what the excitement level was. You go to spring training in 1987. Uh, it looks like you're going to crack the rotation, which is a great young rotation that the Royals have with Saberhagen and, and Gubazaw. And uh, was Danny Jackson with them still? Danny Jackson was still there, yes. Okay. So uh, a couple of days, uh, not a couple of days, late March of 1987, uh, the word comes that you have been traded to the New York Mets. That, that had to be, for someone as young as you were, and, and only few months in the major leagues it had to be a shock it was I was completely floored by it I'm a, the hometown kid I'm finally going to crack the rotation I'd spent two years in winter ball in Puerto Rico pitching all year round to try to you know learn my craft and you know I think Billy Gardner who was taking over as interim manager at that point for Dick Hauser who had a brain tumor at the yeah. time the late great Dick Hauser uh, told me the day before and he told the media he said give him the glossy which was his sort of euphemism for saying put him in the put him in the guide he's going to make the team and the next day, Sherholtz, John Sherholtz calls me in the office and told me, you, you know, you've been traded. And I was so stunned, I just asked him to, to, to be quiet for a few minutes. I just, we just sat there and looked at each other for about five minutes because I, I couldn't process what, what had just happened. And then I realized it was real, and then he told me what was happening, and I didn't know how to act. I went to my locker, packed up my bag, and left as quickly as I could because I thought, how do you, I didn't know how to act when you get traded. You just feel rejected, so you end up getting out of the door as quickly as possible. So here was the Kansas City kid who pitched for the Royals, you know, lived his major league dream, was in the clubhouse of the team he grew up watching, and, uh, and now you're on your way to New York. Let's we gotta at least take a moment and, and, uh, and talk about the trade. Uh, Ed Hearn is the player the Royals got. Ed Hearn turned out is a fabulous gentleman. Yes. He's a terrific guy. I remember writing a story about him before the World Series in 2015. Lives in Kansas City. Yes. Um, but maybe one of the most lopsided trades in, in, in history, which I, I don't know how, how you react to that, but, but that's, um, you know, what a, what a... Have you ever thought about why it happened? And a lot to this day <laughs> still, and I've, I've gathered some, some information through the years from different sources, and, uh, you know, the best I can tell is it's a combination of things, and, I, you know, I detail it in the book about my reputation as a minor leaguer with the Royals and butting heads with pitching coaches and being stubborn and 
my style of pitching, of changing arm angles and throwing sidearm, uh, was really kind of frowned on by some of the pitching coaches. And I also had a wrap in my wrist, uh, kind of like a Rick Sutcliffe used to do. Uh, and they thought that was a precursor to potential arm arm injuries in the future. And uh, there was one scout in particular, Tom Farrick, who was one of the super scouts for the Royals back then. And he had seen Ed Hearn play on the West Coast in 86 and have a great two-week stretch when Gary Carter was on the DL at that time. And uh, the Royals really felt they needed a catcher. They had a young, headstrong, kind of flaky <laughs> young pitcher that they didn't know and, you know, didn't like his style so much. And, and you know, it, it, there's a lot of other issues. I touch on it, too. I was uh, 19 years old when I was uh, rehabbing my knee injury with the Royals. And I lived at home and rehabbed with Mickey Cobb. And that was the year that the Royals had their first big drug bust. Willie Mays Akins, UL Washington, Willie Wilson, Jerry Martin. And Willie Mays Akins invited me to his party, uh, to his apartment that night. And I was kind of gotten caught up in that. I was a 19-year-old rubbing elbows with big leaguers and certainly did some things that I wasn't proud of but didn't know much better. And I think that might have played into the equation as well. There was, there was such a culture of that, though, at the time. At the time, not just in baseball, but really in all sports, but especially in baseball and here in Kansas City, kind of a, a, a tough time, tough chapter for the Royals, who coming off the 80, 81 play, 80. You know, 80 World Series appearance, 81 playoffs, then 82, 83 are some dark times for the Royals. They really were, and you know, as I said, I, I you know, I was a 19-year-old kid, <laughs> and I was hanging out with major league players. And Vita Blue was involved yeah. there too. Willie Mays Aiken spent a lot of time in jail. Those were, I think, the first major league baseball players that actually went to jail. And little did we know, uh, you know, that uh, we were being watched the whole summer by the FBI, and you know the. The rest is history, but I certainly was caught up in that, and you know, I, I, I detail it in the book to, to, to a certain extent and talk about the mistakes that I made along the way. So some great years in New York with the Mets, the 20-3 and three season in 1988, the, the, uh, the playoffs, uh, you, you lead the National League in strikeouts three straight years. Uh, it's, it's just a great run in New York. You fall in love with the city as, as a Met, as a member of the Mets. Yes. Um, they don't get to the World Series uh, while you're there. But in 1992, um, the Mets trade you to the Toronto Blue Jays, and this was another disillusioning moment for you, as, as I read. Yes, it really was. Uh, I mean, it, it, this is almost six years post the Kansas City Royals' original trade, and I felt the same way. I felt rejected. I felt, man, I, I really love it here, and, and this, is, this is a great place to play. And I was going to be a free agent, so I thought maybe there was a chance I could be traded, but I, I made it past the trade deadline that year, so my trade came in at the end of August. So I had to clear waivers and entire rosters cleared waivers that year. And there was there was barking from the Players Association about collusion. How can all these players get through waivers? And and we all did, and I, did, I certainly did. So uh, it was a blessing, you know, with, with the benefit of hindsight uh, to be part of that World Series championship team. Canada's first, Toronto's first was was really a great showcase for me to pitch on, you know, on center stage. Uh, but when the trade happened, once again, you know, you, you can't help but feel a little bit rejected. Uh, you know, right. that's that's only the human emotion. So, right, the Blue Jays win the first of their two straight World Series in '92, and you pitch a pivotal Game Six in, in that yeah. uh, the uh, pivotal Game Six in that World Series. The off season of '92 is fascinating. Um, uh, you're a free agent, and uh, and Kansas City wants you back. Take us to the winter meetings in Louisville and Ewing Kaufman's room at the Gold House. Uh, this, this to me, Ewing Kaufman is pretty ill at this point. Yes. But we know that he was desperate for a, a kind of a final run 
while he was alive at, at, a, at a championship team, and he saw you as a big part of that. He really did, and you talk about a, just an, a, such an impressive person, uh, but also what a salesman. He had a bed in the middle of that hotel room because he obviously was very sick with cancer at the time, but he still had the strength to get to Louisville and then meet with me face to face. And it was an incredible meeting. Uh, he was somebody I, I sort of idolized growing up in Kansas City, what he did for the Royals and what he did in the community and a self-made billionaire. I had enormous respect for him, but he looked me in the eye and said, you're the worst trade we ever made. I want to bring you back home and I want to give you a $9 million signing bonus up, up front. And he showed me his checkbook. He had his checkbook with him, and my mouth hit the floor, and I asked for a timeout. I said, can I step out in the hallway and talk to my agent? Just because I was bursting. <laughs> well, I mean, you can only imagine what that feels like when somebody makes that kind of an offer to you. And it took me all of about five minutes to go back in and shake his hand and said, yes, I'll take it, thank you, I want to come home. But that, it was a completely overwhelming moment by a remarkable man who was not only uh, a legend in the Kansas City area, but I could see firsthand a great salesman who, because he just looked me in the eye and he would not take no for an answer. And he wasn't going to get no for an answer from me at that point. You have a great year statistically in 93, uh, but finish under five, 11 and 14 sort of record, but strikeouts way up, 190 plus strikeouts, and ERA is really solid, but it sets up 1994, which. Um, Man, fans and Royals fans can quote chapter and verse about 94. The team played so well that year, had a 14-game winning streak at one time toward the end. But the season ends in August uh, because of the labor disruption. You win the Cy Young Award that year. What do you, could, the, could the 94 team have been a championship team? We felt really good about it. Um, even though on paper we probably weren't as talented as the White Sox were that year, but we were really making noise. We really felt like we had it turned around and maybe even to the point where the organization would have given us some help, uh, you know, through the, not only through the trade deadline, but then at the end of the year, we had some, some prospects coming up from AAA that could have helped supplement the roster. But uh, I don't know about championship level, but we were in the hunt. We were going to play meaningful games in September yeah. again. We were going to be in a pennant race, and uh, that's, that's what we had hoped for to completely turn around our fortunes and uh, it certainly was happening that year and the, the strike was uh, was just devastating everything changed after that it did including the economics of baseball yes. and so you are no longer a member of the royals after the 94 season you go back to toronto for half a year or so yes and uh and then but you end up the, the final half of the year with the new york yankees um, and uh, in 95 the yankees are in the playoffs 96 of course fantastic year with the World Series championship. The first of four World Series championships for you in New York, giving you five in your career. Um, listen, uh, the Yankees, you you saw some of the greatest, I think, baseball teams of, of several generations, those 90, mid-90s to early 2000 Yankees teams. And in the middle of that, in 1999, 20 years ago, you pitched baseball's 16th perfect game. Um, you opened the book with with the eighth inning, after yes. the eighth inning, tell us where you were. You take a, a, a perfect game uh, into the ninth, but in the eighth inning, you were not in the dugout. I was not in the dugout, and this, you know, that that's one of the themes of the book I'm really proud of, and Jack Curry did a great job of bringing out is kind of the vulnerability and insecurities that pitchers feel, and um, you know, it's you you would think that you know I would be supremely confident in that position, but I was anything but, and. Everybody's so superstitious. Nobody will talk to you. Nobody will look at you. It's a common story among uh, whenever there's a no-hitter or a perfect game going. And uh, I was going nuts. I needed an outlet. And 
I'm 36 years old. This is the last chance I'm ever going to have to do something like this. I, I was fully aware of everything. So I went up in the bathroom and put my hands on the sink and had an out loud conversation with myself in the mirror. And if you would have seen me from behind, you would have thought that this guy's cuckoo. This guy's lost his marbles. And uh, I was pretty close at that point. I mean, there was uh, a good angel and a bad angel. The good angel was saying, you could do this. This is your day. You know, it's Yogi Berra day. You're, you're right. going to do this. And then the other part was saying, well, you better prepare yourself in case you blow it. You know, you might hang a slider. How are you going to react in case that happens? And it was back and forth dueling, you know, positive and negative thoughts. And I finally just uh, finished with one last positive thought about keep doing what you're doing, be aggressive, strike one. And went back out there and, uh, you know, one, two, three in the ninth and 27 up, 27 down on Yogi Bear Day. At the end of the day, I threw 88 pitches. And there, wow. was, there was a big number eight behind home plate because that was Yogi's number. So I don't know if you believe in the baseball gods or not, but... I they still were smiling wonder. that day. I still wonder they? somebody was smiling on it. It was against the, the Montreal Expos. What was the last out? It was a pop-up to third base. Orlando Cabrera uh, was the shortstop for the Expos back then, and he had a pop-up to Scott Brocious, our third baseman. And I remember not knowing how to react and just kind of dropping to my knees and putting my hands on my head, and Joe Girardi was right there with me. Very cool moment. All right, um, you're here because the Yankees and the Royals are opening a three-game series. Let's talk just briefly about each team. The Yankees are... Second best record in the American League right now, behind the Minnesota Twins, who'd have thought. Uh, but this is, you know, I think it's amazing where the Yankees are, as many injuries as, as they've had. What's the upside? What's the potential for this Yankees team? Uh, the potential is great because of I mean, almost overachieving. I mean, if you look at the Royals and the Yankees, and their records are complete opposite going into the series. I think the Royals are better than their record based on some of their young talent. Their lineup's pretty good, I think. Yeah. And it's something to look forward to. And the Royals and the Yankees, on the other hand, they probably overplayed their record a little bit. Uh, Gio Urshela, out of nowhere, has given them tremendous uh, contributions. Uh, Domingo Herman came in as maybe a AAA, going to be a, maybe in a bullpen piece, ends up taking over for Luis Severino and pitching like Luis Severino. So I think some of the, some of the uh, Yankee players have played uh, maybe over their skis a little bit to this point, but it is a great story. And when they do get healthy and get some pieces back, uh, they're going to be dangerous in the second half because that, that's only, only going to supplement their roster. But I, I do believe the Royals are, are much better than the record would indicate at this point. Yeah, I mean, with uh, Alberto Mondesi at short, as you, as you mentioned, Wood Merrifield now moved to, to the outfield with Nicky Lopez called up. Yeah. Alex Gordon having a really nice kind of comeback season for him. Hunter Dozier doing things that uh, we haven't seen Hunter Dozier do in the major leagues. I, I, I we, we keep waiting for the for the team to turn a little bit, and it, it'll it'll rest on their pitching. Yeah, it's always the pitching, without a doubt. I mean, uh, even though I'm biased, I'm obviously a pitcher, but I think it's exciting to see this young lineup. I you know obviously I follow the Royals. I'll always in my heart uh, be a Royals fan and be thankful for that for my time here and my family all lives here, so they all keep me updated on what the Royals are doing, but. I agree completely. I think there's some great young players. A nucleus is in place. Maybe you need that, you know, that one big arm or that two couple of big arms to come out of the minor leagues, uh, whoever that may be. Very good, David Cohn. Thanks a million for joining us on Sportsbeat KC. My pleasure, Blair. Thanks for having me. Links to the stories about David Cohn and the Royals can be found in the show notes on KansasCity.com, on the True Blue app, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash True Blue. Thanks to our producers, Kathy Liu and Leah Becerra. You've been listening to Sports Beat KC, a sports podcast by the Kansas City Star. I'm your host, Blair Kirkhoff. We'll talk Kansas City sports again soon.